turn to Romans chapter 6. And as you're turning there, um, I want to talk to you real briefly about next week's sermon. We're going to cover verses 15 to 23, or finish that up today. But verse 23, Romans 6, 23, is familiar territory to anyone who's been around the Bible for very long. Uh, The wages of sin is death, the free gift of God is obviously the gospel. You inherit eternal life instead of the wages of sin, which equates to being dead now and being dead in eternity. It's a great passage, and we're going to briefly talk about that this morning. But next week, the text has brought us to a place where it's pure evangelism. So I want to encourage you next week, if you know someone, if you have someone who's a friend who you'd like to bring to church just to hear a simple explanation of the gospel... Um, next week is going to be a, a really precious time in God's word. If it's right in our flow, it's like a John three sixteen moment in our exposition of Romans. So please plan now, invite now some friends to come back next week just to hear the gospel in a clear expository fashion. Romans chapter 6, by the way, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can look down underneath the seat in front of you. There's a pew Bible and find your way to page 122 toward the back. And uh, that's Romans 6 and you can meet us there. Romans chapter 6, we're going to deal with verses 15 to 23 in a second part of studying this passage. Romans chapter 6, follow along as I read verse 15. Paul says, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, that you are slaves of the one you obey? Either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Now I'm speaking in human terms, Paul says. Because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in holiness or sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed For the outcome of those things is death. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It lasts about three and a half hours. It was filmed with a new imaging technology called Technicolor. It was shot in a widescreen format. It literally defined the word epic for the entire movie industry. It remains my favorite movie to this day. It's the only movie I own. And it is what? Ben-Hur. I got an amen for Ben-Hur. That's awesome. (laughs) I love Ben-Hur. What most people don't realize is that, did you know know that Ben-Hur, the title Ben-Hur had a subtitle? The subtitle was this, Ben-Hur, colon, a tale of the Christ. 
There's so much I could talk about regarding that film. I still get sweaty palms watching that chariot scene and chills on my arm when I see Christ offer Judah Ben-Hur that cup of water. I love the way that movie never shows the face of Christ. It's his impact, not his visage, not his image that had such an impact. One of the things that's so pronounced in that movie is it gives a very accurate and detailed depiction of slavery in the Roman Empire. If you remember any of the plot, um, and uh, I hope that you, you, you really, I, I don't think I've ever recommended anyone watch a movie from the pulpit. You got to watch Ben-Hur. It's just really good stuff. Um, it takes you a little while to remember that it's Judah Ben-Hur and not Moses because Charlton Heston isn't there. But anyway, you'll get used to that pretty quick. You know, there's an accident where a rock falls off and hits uh, a friend of his who has a, who's a Roman citizen. He then uh, takes out vengeance on Judah Ben-Hur. He's sentenced to um, slavery, uh, actually a, a galley rower on a, a boat. It's a horrific uh, depiction of slavery, which was very real. The masters had absolute oversight over these men and women and children as chattel, as possessions, as nothing more than work mules. But it also shows that if you had a benevolent master, you could actually earn his favor and become a favored son. And ultimately, ultimately be freed from slavery. It's a very accurate understanding of the way slavery worked in Rome. Slavery was a part of the Jewish culture, the Roman culture, and the Greek culture. It varied a little from culture to culture. Slaves were completely at the whims and disposal of their masters. Slaves could be treated with brutality or grace and kindness, depending on their master. Slaves could earn freedom from a willing master or lord, be granted sonship and even possession of property. And slavery was commonplace in the Roman Empire. We said last week, up to upwards of 70% of the entire population of Rome were slaves. Only three in 10 were rich enough or Uh, prospered enough, favored enough, fortunate enough to not be slaves. And those who were not slaves owned slaves. Rather than trying to overthrow the cultural understanding of slavery, which Paul is often criticized for in in contemporary circles. Because what happens, as as we mentioned last week, is people take the idea, this horrific idea of slavery in in, um, early American uh, um, uh, history and import that understanding into Rome and into Greece. There are some commonalities, but it wasn't the same. The majority of the people were actually slaves. They They were owned employees, said another way. Paul doesn't try to overthrow the institution of slaves. He actually instructs slaves elsewhere, Ephesians 6, Colossians 3, to be obedient to their masters. He says, you're in a position of subservience to a master. Your job is not to exit slavery. Your job is to be an honorable slave. In dealing with the case of Onesimus and and Philemon, he actually instructs that there is a palatable relationship that should exist between a slave master and a slave. Paul doesn't throw slavery out the window. And that's one of the points of heartburn for a lot of contemporary theologians. 
I think the reason that Paul didn't do that is he wasn't going to undo the culture in a simple letter to a local group of believers. But he was going to upset the culture by people being godly in the roles that God had called them to. He remarked in 1 Corinthians 7 that a believing slave is, a, is free and that a free believer is a slave of Christ. Isn't that interesting? That no matter what your station in life as a slave is, ultimately, if you're a Christian, you're free in Christ. And that will manifest itself one day in eternity. If you boil slavery down to its essence, the reason Paul reaches for this concept in the passage we read in Romans to illustrate the gospel and to illustrate our pre-Christian experience with sin is that it, it involves your status and it involves your control. Your, your ontology, the way you live, who you are, how you're defined, as well as who or what controls you. Every man, every woman is under the subjection and control of some other principle, some other force. The poem was wrong. You are not the master of your destiny. You're not the captain of your soul. In his earth, just shaking this epic incredible study of slavery in the Bible. Murray Harris writes this. In the 20th century, uh, in 20th century Christianity, we have replaced the expression total surrender with the word commitment. And we've replaced the word slave with the word servant. But there's an important difference. A servant gives service to someone, but a slave belongs to someone. We commit ourselves to do something, but we render ourselves, when we render ourselves to someone, we give ourselves up. The New Testament unfolds many ways to describe the relationship of Christians with their Lord. We are his disciples, sons, daughters, and friends. But one of the most overlooked descriptions is that we are also his slaves. Now, as we considered last week, the the concept of slavery and spiritual freedom from being a slave to sin, we understand that slavery means lordship of someone over us, ownership of someone over us, privilege and spiritual freedom from something that used to be over us. And that's the description that Paul gives here in Romans 6. It's important to remember that Colonial slavery in the American South is not a direct equivalent with slavery in the Roman Empire. It was taken for granted. So when Paul reached for the image of slavery to describe Christians' relationship with the Lord and unbelievers' relationship with sin, this wasn't something that people would be aghast by. They would would gasp by and say, that he can't use that. That's such an inappropriate relationship that he is assigning us to the Lord. It was just commonplace. Well, we studied that last week, and we looked into uh, really unpacking this passage by breaking it down into two fundamental facts about slavery that Paul extracted from the slave world of the Roman Empire and imports into our understanding of the gospel. Two fundamental facts about slavery. The first one is this. Slavery is inescapable. This is a surprise to most people. You and I are always a slave to someone or to some principle. It's inescapable. Everyone is a slave. Romans 6 contains that 
predictable misunderstanding of the gospel of grace that Paul anticipated after chapter 5. That if God gives grace and grace overcomes all of our sin and grace is glorified by overcoming and forgiving and covering our sin, then why don't we sin more so that grace can abound? Well, he answers that question in verse 1. Verses 1 and 2. And he also answers it again in verse 15. What shall we say then? Shall shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? God has an accounting on our life as a believer where he imparts grace to us. We're not under the, the, the check off tick mark of the law. Since we're under grace, shouldn't we just go ahead and sin? Might as well. We're already forgiven. Theologians call this anti against or no nomism, which is law, antinomianism, against the law. You don't have to do anything because you're a Christian. Now, Paul answered, this is just review because we looked at this last week. Do you not know? In other words, don't be stupid. Don't you know that's not how Christianity works? And then he goes on to explain. Don't. He goes back and captures the essence of verse 12, by the way. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Don't present the members, the parts of your body as to sin, as instruments or tools of unrighteousness. Instead, present yourself as a slave or as a tool to God as one alive from the dead. Then he hammers that again in verse 16. Don't you know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. We looked at this last week. It's a very simple principle. Obedience reveals ownership. You obey yourself, then you are a slave to your sin. You obey God, you're a slave to righteousness. Very simple. Verse simple, verse 17, thanks be to God, though you were past tense, you were slaves of sin. That's the designation of an unsaved, unredeemed, unbeliever's life. Slaves to sin. Unable to do righteous things. Oh, we can do kind things as unbelievers. We can do good things as unbelievers. We can do benevolent things to unbelie- uh, as unbelievers, but we cannot do things that please Christ because they're not done for him and for his glory. Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, there's a designation of of a Christian. You used to be that. You became, here's another designation of Christian, obedient from the heart internally, not merely external, to that form of teaching to which you were committed. That form of teaching is the, the codified word of God in the Bible of the good news of Christ and the gospel. Oh. Obedience is the the signature of a believer. We obey God. Perfectly? No, not perfectly. First John says, if we say we have no sin, we make God out to be a liar who says we have sin. It's not it's not a position of perfection, it's a position of progress. In verse 18, having been freed from sin, we don't have to sin. Yes, we will. But in the moment of every choice of sin, we don't have to make that choice. Whereas a believer has no power not to make that choice. An unbeliever. You become slaves of righteousness. Is that your, is that your signature in your life? You're a slave of righteousness? You're owned by a righteous standard written in the heart of God, not by a demonic standard of sin? 
written on our flesh. That brings us to where we left off last week. First of all, slavery is inescapable. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to righteousness. Now we come secondly to another fundamental fact about slavery. Slavery is not only inescapable, slavery is intentional. Just, just when you think, well, I'm not sure I'm comfortable with saying I'm, I'm a slave of one or the other. He says, actually, it's worse than that. You choose to be that. It's even worse than you think. It's not just who you are. It's what we decide. Slavery is intentional. Verse 19, he says, first of all, I'm speaking in terms of humanness, in human terms, because of the weakness of your flesh. What is he talking about there? Well, we have to uh, find here in verse 19 the explanation for why Paul explains the gospel in terms of slavery. It's the explanation for the explanation. It's the explanation for the illustration. Why in the world would Paul pick that relationship, slaves and masters, to illustrate our unsaved life and our redeemed life? Why slavery? He says, let me tell you, I'm just speaking in fleshly terms, in human terms. He's using an example from everyday life, in other words. Literally, the terms of humanity, the terms of your experience because of the weakness of our flesh. That's another interesting term. The inability to grasp the radical nature of our relationship to the controlling principles in our lives, either sin or God. Now, understand what he's saying. He's saying it is so difficult to really grasp and understand how enslaved an unbeliever's heart is to sin and how enslaved a believer's life is to God. That's so difficult to understand. I've got to go to third grade level, look him in the eye, illustration. Let me find an illustration in the culture that's rampant, that everyone understands. We don't understand slavery like the readers of Paul's letter to the Romans did, but they did. He says, I, I, I want to break it down very simple. This is when you, you, get, you sit your child down and you say, look at me. Look, eye contact, look at me, focus. I'm going to use a very simple illustration. That's what Paul says here in verse 19. He explains why he's using the radical ownership of a master over a slave to speak of sin over an unbeliever, and righteousness in the life of a believer. It's radical. It's so radical, he actually has to say, this is why I'm using this radical illustration. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. That's another way of graciously saying, you knuckleheads, do you not know? So he uses a picture that no one can miss. He's already said, present yourself as, and your members, your body parts and, and your mind as a slave or uh, as a tools of God because you used to be a slave or a tool of the devil and your flesh. But let me flesh that out in simple terms that the culture would teach you every day. It's the Greek word for slave, doulos. It's the most mistranslated, I shouldn't say that, it has the, the greatest variety for no, um, uh, no logical reason uh, of translation in the Bible. Sometimes it's slave, like here. Sometimes it's servant. Sometimes it's bond servant. And modern translators have struggled with this because of its, its difficulty in attachment to 
early American culture. So they don't want to say the word slave in all the context. The word is slave, but it's not American South slaves. It's slavery in terms of Roman and Greek empires. It's the right word. Slavery. It's stronger than servant. A servant offers himself. A slave is owned. That's the exact graphic imagery Paul wants us to understand. Then he goes on. For just as you, past tense, presented your members. We said that's parts of your body. Mind and physical. Parts of who you are. You presented your members as slaves to... Now he explains a little bit more what he started talking to us about last week. Impurity and to lawlessness. And then there's this principle. Resulting in, coordinating with further lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness resulting in sanctification. It's virtually a repetition of the same principle and that's explained in verse 13. However, there's a twist. There's a more specific application here. The point is not to offer any part of who we are, body or mind, to sin. Now, I tried when I was studying this all week in the semantic domain of the nomenclature. All that means is all the, the lexicography, what these, these words actually mean. I kept trying to say, how can, I, how can I soften this? How can I make this more palatable? How can I make this less uncomfortable? How can I make none of us blush? And, and I can't. It's just, let me tell you what it says. Don't present any part of your body to sexual immorality. And it's that graphic in the Greek text. Impurity. Sexual immorality. Paul uses the same word in chapter 1, verse 24. It's sexual immorality used elsewhere in Paul. It's what happens in your heart that leads you to use your body for the expression of sexuality outside of the marriage bed. It's very simple. It's a heart issue. Then he goes on, he uses another word, anomia, against uh, no law, lawlessness. That's extra, that's to behave in disregard to God's word. So when you put those together, it's clear what he's saying. Internally and externally, we used to present ourselves to sin and we're to do the exact opposite as Christians. It's a reference to the internal and external manifestation of sin, mind and body. So let's pull over for a second. We would be remiss if we didn't stop at this specific point of Paul's application of our old man, new man, Our old master, our new master, the one who is our Lord in the flesh, the one who is our Lord in the spirit. Do you, how are you doing in presenting your thoughts to God? Not as a slave of sin, but as a slave of righteousness. How does that impact joking and How does that impact conversations? How does it impact what you view and what you'll watch? How does that impact where you click the mouse? Internally, do you offer your mind or body to impurity? It's graphic. Your eyes, your hands, your feet. As Paul's saying here, even our private parts. 
no member should be offered as an instrument for sin or the expression of sin. Look at his reasoning here. It, it's, it's, it's ongoing. He says, for further lawlessness. It results in further lawlessness. In other words, when you approach sin, especially sexual sin, especially impurity and lawlessness, when you pursue that, it results in a further pursuit. I was a youth pastor for almost three decades. I never one time talked to students, high school, college, who were struggling with impurity, who said, you know what? We struggled and we fell. And now that we've fallen, we know what falling is like. So we're never tempted to do that ever again. It's not how it works, is it? When you fall into sin... It gives you a taste for more sin and more sin and more sin. Paul is giving us a graphic illustration of sanctification here. Don't go a little way towards sin. It'll pull you all the way towards sin. It results in further ongoing pursued lawlessness. There's a progression that's natural in sin. No one sins one time and says, well, that's good enough. I don't ever have to try that again. It pulls you into more. But look at the flip side of that. As a believer, you present your members, your mind and body, as slaves, not to impurity and not to lawlessness, but as slaves to what? Righteousness. If you present your mind and body to righteousness, look at the next phrase. That has a resulting commensurate domino effect as well. What happens when you set your mind and your body toward righteousness? What happens? That results in, here's our word. We've been talking about this for several weeks. Aggressive, aggressive sanctification. It's the word holiness, the word sanctification. Here's what typically happens. It's almost like falling into a swimming pool. I, let me give you an illustration. I was, um, I was teaching at a youth camp. I was uh, fully clothed. The guy came up and um, pushed me into the pool. Now I've, I'm in the pool. Ha, ha, ha. <sighs> Adam, I don't miss youth ministry that much sometimes. So I'm in there. And, and so I remember thinking, well, I'm already in the pool. I'm already wet. I might as well swim. I'm I'm here. I mean, what what am I going to do now? I've lost my iPhone. I've lost my brand new Birkenstocks. What am I going to do? I'm going to swim. That was a sanctifying moment for me. Actually, that was an unsanctified moment for me. Let me see. So I just swam for a while. We tend to look at sin the same way. Well, I've already sinned. I'm already soiled. I'm already, I'm already, I've already fallen in the pool. I'm already wicked and sinful. I might as well continue in. It leads to further and further. Can I tell you the flip side of that? When you pursue righteousness, when you have your quiet times, when you read your devotions, when you're consistent in the word, when you're offering yourself in fellowship, in a care group, in a small group, in a friendship, in a relationship, in a koinonia fellowship kind of context, when you do that, it inspires you and it motivates you into further righteousness. Do you wonder why Satan and his minions do everything they can to distract you from those means of grace? Does that make sense? Because once you start, you want to do more. I like to tell people, just, just read a verse in the morning and, and see what the Lord does. Because you can't just read a verse. It draws you in. It pulls you in. 
When you begin to see God working in your life, when you begin to see holiness and sanctification happens, it's motivating. It's like that 10th grader who starts working out. After a few weeks, he walks by the mirror and he looks at his arm. You ever seen a 10th grader do that? You know, they kind of walk, wow, that's... And they start wearing tank tops. It's sort of an interesting thing. (laughs) When you see results, you keep going. The same thing on a diet. you, You name it. Once you see results, it motivates you to keep going. That's the principle here on both sides of the equation. Little sin leads to more sin. A little righteousness leads to more righteousness. No one has ever come to me and said, well, I'm struggling with this sin or that sin. and It's very difficult. And I'm also having the greatest quiet times I've ever had in my life. Man, this morning is great. But I'm still struggling. It just doesn't happen like that. I was talking to one of my sons this week. It's an old saying you've seen on the placards of a lot of church buildings. Sin will keep you from this book or what this book will keep you from sin it's true the principle is here it it leads to more sin results in sin righteousness results in more righteousness it results in holiness this word sanctification now you say okay that's interesting how important is it Hold your finger there and turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. This is a, call this a marker. This is what you should mark in your Bible. Underline, highlight, star. Whatever you do in your Bible, this is a verse to do. This is a terrifying verse. This is a motivating verse. It can be an easily misunderstood verse though as well. Hebrews chapter 12. He talks about sanctification, holiness. And he says this, verse 14. Pursue peace with all men. Now we find out something about our sanctification. It's very much attached to our relationships. I think it's clear to say that the majority of our lack of sanctification is expressed in relationships. Our sinfulness is. Pursue peace with all men and the, here's our word, holiness or sanctification. Here it is. Without which no one will see the Lord. What does this mean? Saved people pursue holiness. And people who say they are saved but have no desire or pursuit of holiness have deceived themselves. It's very simple. You won't see the Lord if you're not pursuing sanctification. I don't know how much clearer it can be than that. Then he goes on with further application. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. How can you come short of the grace of God? I thought grace was a gift. No, it's a gift from God's side and we respond to that grace. How? Look at this. That no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. And by it, many may be defiled. Do you understand when you're frustrated or bitter with someone, the impact that has on the people around you? That there be no immoral. Now we find our sexual immorality, impurity, or godless. That's the amoral, the the immoral person and anomos, the no law person. Like Esau, here's an illustration. Who sold his own birthright for a single meal. He sacrificed the eternal on the altar of the temporal. For you know that even afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance 
though he sought for it with tears. It's a powerful passage. How important is sanctification? It's so important that if you don't pursue it, it proves you don't know Christ. We're not talking about absolute sanctification. There was a, a strand of, of a John Wesley's theology, Wesleyanism, that said if you pursue sanctification hard enough and long enough and with enough aggression, you can be sanctified. You can be sinless and perfect in this life. That's not what this is talking about. Again, 1 John 1 and 2, the end of 1 and the and first part of 2, totally ransacked that theology. We, we can't say we have no sin. We make God a liar. And John says... Confess your sins. Confess your sins. And God who is faithful will forgive your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Well, how would that be the case if we're absolutely sanctified? Not the case. Are you aggressive about your sanctification? That's the series we're in. Are you aggressive about it? Do you hate your sin? There's, there's an interesting relationship that every believer has with their sin and sinful patterns and sinful thinking and sinful actions. It's a love-hate relationship, isn't it? Do you understand that? In the moment you love it, afterwards you hate it. You hate it leading up to it, then you commit it, and it could be an expression, a conversation, an action. William Hendrickson says this, to be slaves of sin means to be enemies of righteousness. Wow. To be enemies of sin means to be friends of righteousness equally well. To be devoted to both sin and righteousness is impossible. How clear is that? So I'm still a little confused, Paul. He understands that. So verse 20, back to Romans 6. When you were, this is past tense, when you were slaves of sin... You were free in regard to righteousness. What is that talking about? Remember, the imagery is being slave. There's only two options. You're a slave to something or you're free from something. Now, we typically think that when we're slaves uh, to, to sin, we're, we're uh, slaves to righteousness, rather, to God, we're, we're free to not sin anymore. That's true. But he turns that illustration over and says this. Well, actually, when you were slaves of sin, you were free You were unowned, disowned, not owned by righteousness. In other words, the Lord wasn't your master. You were free from him. And the whole point of this chapter is to be enslaved to him. Freedom is to be released from the power of a master. And an unbeliever is not under the mastery or power of Christ and righteousness. Verse 21, therefore, I love Paul. Paul is, Paul is so practical. Paul understands how we think and talk. He, he understands that there needs to be a carrot in front of the horse. He never just says, be holy. That's it. He motivates us. He has, says, what benefit do you have? Were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? He says, let's go back and rewind the tape for an unbeliever. How'd that work out for you is what he's saying. Were you happy? Were you satisfied? He says, by the way, the outcome of those things is death. He's already explained that in chapter 5 and early in chapter 6. That The result that the end game for sin is death. Separation from God forever in hell. 
What benefit were you driving from the things of which you are now ashamed? The question I have to ask is, am I now ashamed of the things that I used to be and want and do? Is there a healthy level of, I'm ashamed of who I was. I am so ashamed. I had a great conversation with a, with a young man and, uh, about his um, relationship with a young lady. They're heading toward marriage. And it came to the point where she asked him, can, can you tell me about your past with other girls? And he says, yeah, I can. And it's, it's a bad past. And it happened before I was saved. And he started to explain this to her. She says, stop. He says, that guy is dead, she said. Her theology was really good. He was ashamed of who he was. Paul is turning the key on our heart saying, are you pursuing things that you used to be and for which you and I should be ashamed? Remember Martin Lloyd-Jones' great illustration we talked about a few weeks ago? He says, you know, there's two fields with a robe between and when Christ saves us, he picks us up from the domain of sin and Satan and puts us in the field of, uh, of Christ and righteousness and we should run to Christ who's on the opposite side of the field. But we try to live our life right next to the road. We can still hear the other field yelling at us and wooing us back to enjoy its pleasures. Sin should cause us shame. And Paul says, take the time to think this out. Ponder it. What benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? How did your sinful life work out for you? What was the end game of that? What was the, what was the result of that? I have never heard anyone who's been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus say, this is great, but sin was better. This is all right, but man, it was so much better where I was and what I did and what I pursued. Here's our aggressive point of sanctification, though, folks. This is where, this is where it really, the, the, the wheel hits the road, and that's this. Are we ashamed? Do we hate it? And we hate that we love it. We're ashamed of it. We pursue other things that are the opposite of our sinful life, past inclinations. There's a free grace movement that's afoot in Christianity today. It basically is saying that, well, it's almost the opposite of what we've been studying. Grace is so strong. You're sanctified by grace. We would agree with that. It's, you don't have to worry too much about obedience. Just worry about thinking about the gospel. Well, I don't know how you can do one without the other. This is going back to the old lordship debate where people say you accept him as savior and he will become your lord. No, he doesn't become lord. He is lord. You receive him as Lord and he becomes your savior. That's how it works. So then he flips it on its head and goes to the other side of the seesaw in verse 22. But having been freed from sin, there is your ontology, your being, your expression, your signature as a Christian. Having been freed from sin, we don't have to sin. Yes, we will, but we don't have to. We have the power not to. Having been freed from sin 
and enslaved to God. You see that simple passage? Freed from sin, we are no longer slaves to sin. Now we're slaves to God, enslaved to God. You derive your benefit. Well, what benefit do we get? Resulting in, here's our word again, what is it? Holiness, sanctification. And what's the ultimate outcome? And the outcome is heaven, eternal life. So the question of verse 22 is really this. Are we running from our old master? Are we running towards the Lord Jesus Christ as our master? Do we understand the benefit of running to him in sanctification? What's the benefit? Heaven. Doesn't that sound a lot like Hebrews 12? Pursue sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. It's the same principle. Now, a quick, quick footnote, because I'm always nervous when we talk about this, that you could easily walk away saying, well, I got to be holy and not unholy. I got to be righteous and not unrighteous. I can't sin. I need to be pursuing what, doing what's right. And, and if I don't do that, there's no way I'm saved. Chapter 7 is going to answer that in Romans 7, but just know this. Do you ever find yourself doing the things that you don't want to do? Ever found yourself not doing the things you, you really know you ought to do? Ever felt that way? Ever felt like my life condemns me? There's no way I could be saved because I'm not doing what I actually want to do. Well, so did Paul. So did Paul. And his answer, oh, I'm reaching for chapter 8. I'm, I, I just want to say, let's cover chapter 6 and 7 today and let's go to chapter 8. I love chapter 8. There is now, therefore, say it with me, no condemnation for those who believe the gospel who are in Christ. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that you cannot out God's grace? The people who believe that most are the people who run from their sin, not toward it. That's what our care groups are for, by the way, is to help people become more sanctified. Listen, if we're having small groups and care groups only so we can sit around and have, you know, punch and cookies, cheese and crackers, iced tea and lemonade, you can do that with Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and unbelievers. If we do church right, it's really uncomfortable. It's really corrective. We're helping each other pursue this sanctification. But that's the way God has designed church. It's not like a fellowship for the pretending holy. It's a fellowship for the unsanctified trying to be sanctified. Heaven and hell are at stake here. Heaven and hell are at stake. Now, I want to just... Look briefly at verse 23, and next week, as I said, we're going to have a whole evangelistic sermon just on verse 23. You know it. You memorized it in the Romans Road if you grew up in church. For this is his conclusion to chapter 6. The wages of sin is death. What you get from sin is not good. You'll die in this life and the next. But the free gift is not wages. It's a gift of God. The gracious gift of God is heaven, eternal life, through the gospel, through Christ Jesus our Lord.
I'm going to reserve uh, some expository comments for next week. But can I just say that that is probably the easiest verse in the Bible to read and say, I know what that means. It's pretty simple. It's a lot like John 3.16. So where does that leave us? I want to read you a quote from Alexander McLaren. He was a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon, great man of God. This is so penetrating. Listen to this and just measure your life with what he's saying here as we approach the Lord's table. The true position then for a man is to be God's slave. Absolute submission, unconditional obedience on the slave's part. And on the part of the master, complete ownership. The right of life and death, the right of disposing of all goods and chattels, those are possessions. The right of issuing commandments without reason. The right to expect that those commandments shall be swiftly, unhesitatingly, punctiliously, punctiliously, punctually, let's just say it that way, and completely performed. These things inhere in our relationship to God. Blessed is the man who has learned that they do and has accepted them as his highest glory and the security of his most blessed life. For, brethren, such submission, absolute and unconditional, the blending and absorption of my own will in his will, is the secret of all that makes manhood glorious and great and happy. Said another way, if you're not happy, you're not holy. In the New Testament, these names of slave and owner are translated to Christians and to Jesus Christ. Maybe a better way to talk about Salvation is instead of saying we've been saved, is to say we've been slaved. We become enslaved to God. He is our master. Freedom in Christ is not freedom to sin, but freedom from sin. Did you pay attention this morning when we sang the fourth verse of Charles Wesley's And Can It Be? Just listen to it with fresh ears. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, imprisoned house, slaves to unrighteousness, slaves to sin. Fast bound, fast tied up in sin and nature's light. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flame with light. My chains did what? They fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and... Followed thee. That's a great picture of the gospel. Let me ask you to bow your heads. We're going to prepare for the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table. Ask the band if they would come up. While they're doing that, let me give you a quick explanation. What we're about to do is assemble, it's emblematic. We're going to have a little piece of bread. And we're going to have a little cup of juice. And what that does is symbolizes, and that's all it is, is a symbol. It symbolizes the body of Christ, meaning he came in the flesh. God became a man in Jesus. And his blood in the cup, which is that he bled and died as a substitute for our 
punishment on the cross. What we're doing here is a symbol that God takes seriously because we're announcing to God and the people around us, I am in fellowship with you and those in solidarity with the people around me such that I, I'm not sinless, but I understand my sin. I'm not perfect, but I understand my imperfections. And I know what that cost my precious Lord Jesus on the cross. If you're a baptized believer in good fellowship with your church, we have what's called an open communion. We'd love for you to take the Lord's Supper with us. But if there's something between you and the Lord, something between you and someone else that you just have not resolved, or let's say it this way, you're unwilling to resolve, I want to beg you. 1 Corinthians 11 says, don't do this, what we're about to do, in an unworthy manner. Please, just let it pass by. It's just a symbol. But for those of us who recognize our unworthiness, that's the best worthiness you can bring to the Lord's table. We get to come and say, thank you for the forgiveness of all this sin that I'm so aware resides in my heart. I ask the men if they would come and they're going to pass the bread. Hold that piece of bread until uh, we can all take it together. If you don't understand the gospel, if you're an unbeliever, you can just watch. No one's going to judge you. We're glad you're here. This is just something we do about once a month to remind ourselves of the greatness of our Savior and the greatness of our sin that caused his death. Father, give us now thoughtful moments in relation to your sacrifice of your son. In Jesus' name, amen.